a random encounter at a broadcasting facility, a shared interest and love of all things Marvel, Excelsior, a misinterpreted program title, and behold, a podcast is born. Peter Melnick, podcaster and comic book enthusiast, and Eddie Wilson, upstate New York radio announcer, still with an inordinate amount of catching up to do. Peter! What are you doing? Here we go with a new episode of The Marvelists. Hi, this is Mark Russell, who you might remember from such titles as The Flintstones, Second Coming, and Billionaire Island. And you're listening to The Marvelists with Peter Melnick and Eddie Wilson. Welcome, everyone, to The Marvelists, the Marvel Universe podcast. I'm Peter Melnick. And I'm Eddie Wilson. And before we get into the rigmarole of today's episode and introducing our very special guest we want to tell you all at home how you can get a hold of us on them our social medias yes you are and we are go ahead goo goo kachu anyway uh you can find us on facebook at facebook.com slash the marvelists you can find us on instagram and the twitter at the marvelists you can find us individually on social media i'm on twitter and instagram at peter melnick i'm on tiktok for god knows why at peter melnick but better you can also find Eddie on one social media platform. And what 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 social media platform is that, Eddie? Instagram. Man, man, man. Sorry. Wow, we didn't even need the reverb for that. The one-man reverb. Good job. At Eddie9193. Easy for you to say. It was. Well, for me especially. That's a callback to a previous episode. But... You can also find us on a wide variety of streaming platforms, TuneIn Radio, Stitcher Radio, Podbean, SoundCloud, Spotify, you name it, we're going to be in your ear holes, including on iTunes. Rate, review, subscribe, five-star if you're ever so inclined. Beaten dead horse jokes involving ice cream machines. Also... It's very sad. <laughs> so sad. Very melty also. Well, it's, it is approaching summer, Eddie. But you can also find us on places to support us go to below the slash the marvelous support the show by buying a dad joke immune t-shirt and when you do so money goes into our pockets that's really about it that's all you you, you get a t-shirt yes you don't so, have to be a dad you don't have to be you know in any kind of relationship you just want to like this well, shirt show and you can be a dad if you want i'm doing my eyebrow thing <laughs> but you can also <laughs> Support the show by going to Patreon at patreon.com slash The Marvelous. It's rather all self-explanatory. Yeah, I think it? the dad thing has got to be in an acronym. I'll come up with several by the later. You know, I don't I, know. I'm sure you will, you fox. But you can, <laughs> al- <laughs> you, can <laughs> you can also find us, like I said, on patreon.com slash The Marvelous. I just wanted him to do it again. I don't know. Don't y'all at home like when he does that? Slash The Marvelous. There we go. I'm not going to beat that dead horse anymore. But... When you go to patreon.com slash themarvelists, or pretend Eddie just said it again, but you can support the show for as little as $3 a month to as much as whatever your heart desires. Again, we prefer the million-dollar option a month because, well, you know. We have to split this. Exactly, in capitalism. Why Banana not? splits. That's a, that's a reinvention that, you know, there's a lot of reinventions of mm-hmm. previous properties, but that one was not that good. But we will get to reinventions of properties momentarily. Yes. But, like I said, go support the show. For $3 a month, you get early access to episodes about 24 hours before they drop on the main feed. As well as, for $5 a month, the ability to listen to our re-exploration, for some of us, of the Fantastic Four run by Stan Lee and Jack Kirby. All 102 issues, plus crossovers, plus annuals. 
You name it, we will be talking about it. Eventually. Exactly. So, Eddie, <laughs> joining us on the other end of the tin cannon string is a man who's run on a book by the Distinguished Competition I absolutely enjoyed, and it broke my heart on so many occasions. <laughs> he is also responsible for the Marvel one-shot of Marvel Snapshots, Captain America, which talks about the legendary Jack Kirby Mad Bomb story. And he's also going to be working for Marvel with the upcoming Fantastic Four Life Story comic book. Ladies and gentlemen, we are joined right now with GLAAD award-winning comic writer, as well as an Eisner-nominated writer, Mark Russell. Mark, good evening. Hi, thanks for having me. I think that was worth the intro, so he did that without uh, without any notes. I'm very impressed. Yeah, that is impressive. I don't know if I would have remembered that. Yeah, exactly. So, Mark, it's the cliche kind of question, but how did you get your start in the realm of comic books? Um, probably the cliche answer is I sort of stumbled into it, but but really um, the answer is even less impressive than that. I uh, I uh, had written a couple books before I got into comics. I'd written both about the Bible, one called God is Disappointed in You, which is a sort of a modernized retelling of the Bible, and one about the books that didn't quite make it into the Bible called Apocrypha Now. And, I, and for a long time, I just assumed that that was how I got into comics, that they, they loved these books or they... They were blown away by, you know, the the writing in these books. So they contacted me to ask me if I was gonna if I was interested in writing a new comic book for DC called Prez about a teenager who becomes president. But it wasn't until years later I found out the uh, the, the more underwhelming truth, um, which was that Marie Javens, who was my editor um, for most of my titles at, at DC, had she had friended me on Facebook and. Um, and was impressed, was reading my Count Chocula fan fiction that I was reading on Facebook. <laughs> and, you know, just posting, like, little, like, paragraphs. It was sort of like uh, Count Chocula and Frankenberry and Booberry written as sort of like, as if they lived in some sort of Game of Thrones universe. <laughs> wow. And uh, she thought, that guy should be writing a comic book. Um, so she uh, contacted me. And offered uh, in, to ask if I would be interested in writing uh, the comic book Prez. Now, go, rewinding back over to God is Disappointed in You, you did that book alongside Too Much Coffee Man's Shannon Wheeler. And Shannon is a friend of the show. We used to hang out with him at East Coast Comic Con in Secaucus, New Jersey, when conventions were a thing. How did you, how did you two get set up together? It was really uh, Shannon's idea. Um, we had known each other from, you know, the, the Portland sort of indie publishing scene for, for years. Uh, but we were just hanging out in the bar having a, a beer one day. It was most good things in my life usually, starting a bar. Um, and he said, you know, he, he was talking about how he had this really, unlike me, he had a really well-adjusted sort of hippie upbringing, whereas I was brought up in like sort of a um, fundamentalist Christian household. So he was saying, well, you know, you know, people refer to the Bible all the time, and I have no idea what they're talking about because my parents never taught me anything about the Bible, and he brought up the story of Job as an example. So over a beer, I just told him the story of Job in like like a minute and a half, and he's like, oh, that's perfect. You should, you should do every book of the Bible just like that, and I'll draw cartoons to go with it, and we'll have a book. And that's sort of where the idea was born. So I thought, you know, at the time, I thought, 
Well, I, I understand the Bible. I, I grew up in church, uh, so this will be easy for me. I'll, I'll bang this book out in six months. Uh, three years later, <laughs> I was still writing the book because I realized as I was writing how little I actually knew about the Bible and actually how little of it is taught in, in Sunday school and in churches. They only really teach the highlights, the, the, the parts that are really useful to them. So uh, it was, it, it was I, think, I think most things that get done get done because you're biting off more than you can chew. If you'd known, like, like big public works projects, like say like the Big Dig in Boston, they probably never would have started if they'd known how much it was going to cost and how long it was going to take. But that said, having made the investment, it's inevitably worth it. Like even if it runs long, even if you have to sink more money into it than you originally thought, it always ends up paying off in the end. And I kind of feel that way about writing, that usually I take on projects thinking, oh, this will be okay, I'll, I'll, I'll bang it out. And it usually ends up costing me a lot more time and, and work and effort because like, once I go down the rabbit hole, but it always pays off in the end. I'm always, I always end up creating something that's better than I, I imagined that I, I was capable of. This book, Mark, uh, got as disappointed in you. Was just not, what, a couple of years ago that it came out? Uh, 2013. 13. Okay, 14. wow. That yeah, time really fast-forwarded then. Yeah, because if I'm not mistaken, I had heard nothing but good about it in at least a couple of comic book stores that I frequent. And It's uh, sitting it was... on the impulse buy rack at our uh, local comic shop, Main Street Comics in Middletown, New York. Uh-huh. Okay, it's a uh, a, th- a thin but a, but a thin hardcover, I think, correct? Yeah. Okay, yeah. yeah. I think it sort of benefited from being sort of the odd duck in the comic book store. Mm, yeah. One thing, it's not really a comic book, and it just sort of sits there glaring at you ominously as you're looking at comic books. Right, but with I, a, I a it, dark cover, and I think it's a, it's a cloud, and God's finger pointing down at you, the little person there. Yeah, it's it, the, the, I think the, the cover design, which is, um, it really has a lot of, uh, it really is what attracts a lot of people. Yeah. It's designed to look like an actual Bible, but with the words, God is disappointed in you, and God preparing to flick a shepherd who's bending over to tie his sandal. Right. Now, in regards to your comic work with Prez, Prez being the creation of Joe Simon, how did that come about? Uh, well, they wanted to do a comic uh, that that was had something to do with the run-up to the 2016 election. Originally, it was going to be 12 issues long, and it was going to run right up to the 2016 election. Of course... Uh, it didn't make it that far. Uh, Prez got canceled after six issues, which at the time I, I, I didn't know that could happen. Uh, I'd only written books before. Nobody ever canceled a book in the middle of a book. So I didn't realize that a comic book run could get canceled halfway. So I really got to tell half the story. But that was the original vision that we were going to like, it was going to be about. And I wanted to, what I basically wanted to do is set it like 20 or 30 years in the future in uh, a future where the elections between now and then have gone sort of horribly wrong. And one of the things in regards to, you know, your work at D.C., the biggest one being the Flintstones. And it's funny because you wouldn't think that those kind of characters would be so thought-provoking and one of the most interesting things in the realm of comics, but... Here we are, all these years later, still talking about your run on the Flintstones, and how did that all come about? 
Well, I think in a, in a way they, they felt bad about having to cancel Prez because I think everyone at D.C. really liked Prez and was sad to see it go, but it, it just wasn't selling very well. So uh, they at the, around that same time, they got the Hanna-Barbera properties, the rights to publish them, and they were planning a bunch of Hanna-Barbera properties. And so I think they offered me the Flintstones uh, almost as a way, almost as like an apology. It's like, well, we're taking Prez from you, but here's the, the Flintstones. And I remember at the time, you know, thinking, well, I, you know, I'm not a huge fan of the Flintstones, but it is kind of about the world's first civilization. And so really what I do when I take on a title is like trying to find what it is I want to talk about and how it relates to the characters, the title that I'm, I'm working on. So I try to make it an amalgamation of those characters and my own sort of neuroses. And, you know, there's a lot about that run that has really stuck with people. Again, you know, since the publication of the series, and it's it ran 12 issues, correct? Yes. Okay. And one of the things about it, you know, there are so many memorable moments, two of which I'm going to bring up. You know, that way we don't spoil, but, you know. Wilma and <laughs> Betty. Yes. Anyway. The wives. In Come reg- on. In regards to one moment where... You managed to take a vacuum cleaner and a bowling ball and made so many man children such as myself uncontrollably weep. So first off, good job on that. Well, thank you. And it wasn't my I didn't intend the blubbering, but I'm glad that you were moved by it. Um, and, and I think that what the Flintstones is largely about is about, and I'm probably preempting your question here, but uh, it's about like how we get subjected to roles. We begin to see each other less as human beings, but as the roles, the functions we play in the economy. You know, that's uh, not a human being. That's that's a guy who fills my gas. You know, that's you know not a, um, a sentient creature. That's a bowling ball. And and yeah, what I want to do is take the ways in which we ourselves are siphoned into these these role, economic roles, and the ways which we siphon other people into these economic roles, and 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 show them as full human beings. You know, we see Fred as a human being with, you know, the, some sort of suffering from the fact that, like, he's only seen as a cog in the machine at work. Uh, but at the same time, he kind of puts the bowling ball on the vacuum cleaner in the same closet, you know, in the same sort of uh, one-dimensional, like, role that he himself is assigned to. And that's sort of the tragedy is that we only see it as a tragedy when it's done to ourselves. And in regards to another moment in the series, the whole uh, mantra of Yabba Dabba Do and how you were able to essentially flip it and make it into something that, you know, a longtime fan of the characters of the Flintstones myself, I never would have seen it as something like that. And, you know, with your interpretation, your reinvention of these characters and all these tropes of the characters— you made that into something completely different, and hats off. And I don't wear many hats, so. Well, thank you. Uh, I, I'll, I will take that hat gladly. Um, yeah, I, I guess I might. One thing I might be remembered for long from now is being the guy who ruined Yabba Dabba Do. <laughs> um, but it sort of arose from the issue that, to me, I was trying to make the Flintstones. It was more sort of relevant to our, our modern civilization. And one of the things that didn't really fit from the original was the uh, water buffaloes. 
uh, because we don't really, nobody really belongs to these like elk club, you know, these sort of rotary club things anymore. These sort of secret societies for that, are, that exist to get men out of the house uh, with their buddies. And so I thought, well, how can I reinvent that in a way that makes sense for, for you know, the, the 21st century? And that's when I, I, I came upon the idea of making them like military veterans. These are, are guys who have participated in a recent war that has given them PTSD. And then Yabba Dabba Doo becomes like sort of the thing they say to sort of help de-escalate tensions and keep them from freaking out when they're suffering from PTSD. And again, there's just something about, you know, the way you write these stories. And I've gone on record. I, I tweeted it at you, and I believe uh, you had retweeted it back. Uh, but... The remark I continue to make about you is you are the modern-day Steve Gerber, and I'm a humongous fan of Steve's work. And, it's you know, coming into the field of comics as a fan three years after his passing, my biggest regret was never being able to meet him, but that's a topic for another day. But the idea of being able to take something from small ideas and making them into these grand, unique kind of things that set them apart from what is going on the comic book shelves at any given moment, you know? Well, thank you, first. That's a, that's a huge compliment to be compared to Steve Gerber. Uh, and, and, yeah, I think that for any sort of creative, I think that the key is to sort of ask yourself what you would be writing, what you would be doing at that moment if you had absolute freedom to talk about anything. And and what what it is that you are that is occupying you at the moment, what it is that you are, that is sort of obsessing you at the moment is, is that's where your best work is going to lie. And so try to choose titles or try to work on titles that you're working on in a way that exploits that in a way that sort of allows you to be fully authentic in what you care about on the page. Going back, Mark to uh, the Flintstones. Did you have any, uh, hurdles or red tape to get through as far as uh, permission, rights, maybe some, I don't know, anxiety about, oh, what am I doing to these characters? Are we going to get an uprising here? Or There was a, a little grief at the beginning. Uh, people, you know, you know, a lot of these, um, you've destroyed my childhood comments on social media. Yeah. The weird thing is that I got way more uh, blowback from what I did to the Flintstones than what I did from the Bible. Um, so that was kind of strange. But... Uh, yeah. The, but it's it, it died down kind of quickly. I think it just took people a little while to get what I was doing uh, and that I was doing my own thing and it wasn't supposed to be like a tasteful homage to the old Flintstones because who who really wants to read a tasteful homage to anything? Um, and, and there was initially some a little bit of really minor pushback from, from Hanna-Barbera, from their marketing department initially. Like they wanted... I got this email saying, once I, I turned in the script for issue number one, like, uh, please don't refer to any deities uh, in the work. Fred has to say yabba dabba do once an issue. Uh, you know, <laughs> like a list of things that like sort of the style guide of the Flintstones that completely ran contrary to everything I was trying to do with with my series. So I went back to, to Marie Javins, who was the editor on the series, and Dan DiDio, who was the publisher at DC at the time. And I said, I don't, I don't think I could work under these strictures. And, and Dan basically just said, don't, don't worry about it. I'll, I'll take care of this. And that was the last time I heard from, you know, marketing 
uh, about that. And and they really just sort of gave me the freedom to write what it is I wanted to write. Jeez, that, to have to have Fred say "Yabba Dabba Do" once an issue. That I mean, that could be like <laughs> I mean, he ends took... up saying it pretty almost once an issue anyway. But yeah, they, 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 but it's clear they wanted it to be like just sort of like a a reiteration of the domestic comedy from the 1960s, uh, you know, in, in a way that wasn't really relevant anymore. They were more, I think they were more, uh, you know, they, they were more worried about preserving the uh, the vitamin pill brand, which was really the only thing the Flintstones had going on at the time for me to ruin was the, the vitamin pill sales. But I think they were more concerned about the vitamin pills than they were about doing a good comic, you no. know, uh, which is understandable because that was, making them more money and the, you know the, this is something that was new and I'm, I'm talking about Hanna-Barbera now I'm not talking about DC mm-hmm. but but luckily DC had my back and they were interested in making something that was unique and not just you know phoning something in that was maybe what everybody was expecting and it encouraged me to like really sort of double down on what I originally wanted to do and Mark you you actually it's not just vitamins you forgot fruity, delicious fruity pebbles and cocoa pebbles. <laughs> That's right. Oh yeah, yeah. There's a, there's a lot writing out. These are the crown jewels. Of, uh, Am I the only one in the room, so to speak, that grew up having Flintstones vitamins? I mean, I guess they're still I, there, I, but I had them. Okay, I did. I, I thought that you know, and, and I got in trouble for saying this once in an interview, but I'm, I'm going to say it again nonetheless. I thought they tasted <laughs> terrible. Yeah, well, you just didn't know any better, perhaps, if you're that young, kind of thing. See, I was a weird kid. I liked those. I liked yeah, the taste. Well, but then again, you know, I got like early uh, exposure to spinach, and I love spinach because of Popeye. Yeah, and you told no, it's good for you. Just don't worry about it. It's, you know. I thought they tasted like what I imagined like a Duracell battery tasting like. <laughs> wow. Okay. <laughs> After the little shock when you put your tongue on the uh, yeah, it's end. Yeah, it's just like, uh, yeah, it just tasted like copper or something. Yeah, okay. I, I, I get you. that weird metal taste to them. It's that, it's that vitamin you didn't know you needed to have. Well, combining, though, like you had made references to the Bible, and of course, again, God has disappointed in you, and the cartoon of the Flintstones, it reminds me, and I have one, maybe two books that do did cross, and I forget how long ago this was out, but Pe- uh, Peanuts, the Gospel According to Peanuts, I think was one title. Any, um, did you had you been exposed to that, or had any influence, or thought about, knew about that being out there previously, or... I'd heard of the Gospel According to Peanuts. I'd never read it. I, I did read the um, the Howard the Howard Robert Crumb uh, Genesis book, which I thought was fantastic. Uh, in a lot of ways, the exact opposite of what I was doing with God is disappointing because he was taking the Book of Genesis and blowing it up to this magnificent epic, uh, and, and I was taking everything and condensing it down to this sort of digestible bathroom reading. Yeah. See, now, when you mention our crumb, all I'm thinking of is Bugs Bunny, and, well, I'm not going to be thinking about that anymore. <laughs> but We said rabbit hole before there, so it was in the, yeah. you know, why not? It's all relevant. Now, let, let's do an exit stage left, even. Oh. I really can't believe I shoehorned that in, but. You had to. <laughs> yeah. That was actually pretty good. I, I've had a lot of people attempt to snag up with. Uh, accent on me and fail miserably. So, thank you kindly. You're, you're, you're like Indiana Jones picking up the the correct <laughs> Holy Grail in the last mistake. Whoa! <laughs> Let's not get carried away here now, please. I'm working with them in the room. So I do have the ego, <laughs> but I digress. So you ended up in 2018 working on Exit Stage Left, the Snagglepost Chronicles, and this was post Flintstone. So when that announcement came out about this book. The hype train was, like, 
right on the rails. And a lot of people were like, well, he really did a good job proving himself with the Flintstones. Let's see what he's going to do with Snagglepuss. And needless to say, you ended up leaving with the 2019 Glad Award for Outstanding Comic Book. So, boy. <laughs> well, thanks. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I, I didn't know how people were going to react to um, Snagglepuss because, um, you know, I think a lot of people were expecting maybe the, the Flintstones Part 2. And it was a very different story. I wanted to tell something that was more serious and and more less uh, sort of glib and satirical and more about like an actual person's you know suffering more about like more rooted in our actual history and not like some abstract on civilization and i i today probably still consider that probably the best thing i've ever written so it was, it was gratifying to me when when you know it, people started getting it and, you know, with the reinvention of the character, you ended up taking Snagglepuss and turning him into a gay Southern Gothic playwright living in 1950s New York. And it's one of those stories, again, you don't see that usually on the comic book shelves at your local comic shop, you know, next to uh, Spandex Man number 705 or, you know, Betty and Veronica 1558, because that, that book's been going for a while. Well, and again, this comic book sort of, like my introduction to comic books was sort of born on Facebook. Uh, I was just writing almost as a gag, just these uh, short conversations between Snagglepuss and Huckleberry Hound as if Snagglepuss was Tennessee Williams and Huckleberry Hound was William Faulkner. And they just had these like really sort of uh, purpley prosy conversations about the mothers and about, you know, uh, going out that evening and, and stuff. And Marie uh, again was reading that on Facebook, and she said, "By the way, if you your 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 Snagglepuss comic has been greenlit," and I said, "I have a, a Snagglepuss comic." <laughs> so the pressure was on then, but uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think in a lot of ways she, she recognizes what a good idea looks like long before I do. And it's a shame too, because as far as I know, DC is finished with working with the Hanna Barbera license, correct? Yeah, they, they they no longer have those licenses. Uh, they're they're not contractually able to do the Hanna Barbera stuff anymore. They can still reprint the stuff that was done, but they're not doing any more Hanna Barbera titles. Were there any other story? Like, can you? Uh, was there like an NDA sign where you can't talk about it? But were there any like stories you wanted to tell, like with other characters reinventions? No, not really. I think that Snagglepuss was the last that I really had really thought about the Hanna-Barbera stuff. I would love to go back and do more Hanna-Barbera stuff at some point, but um, it's, not, it's not like I had, like, a um, Captain Caveman script just waiting, you know, in the wings to go. See, I'd be down with you doing, like, a reinvention of Augie Doggy, but... Yeah, yeah, Augie Doggy is a, is a character. Uh, I, in, in a way, I did sort of do a spinoff of Snagglepuss in the Green Lantern Huckleberry Hound crossover comic, God, I love they, comics. They, <laughs> Just a yeah, concept like yeah, that. Something that sounds like a terrible idea, but uh, in a lot of ways, when something sounds like it's going to be bad, that that's what kind of completely liberates you to do what you want with it, to not worry about trying to land the plane, but you know, crashing it in an interesting way. Uh, but yeah, in the in that issue, that that one-off uh, where Green Lantern uh, meets meets Huckleberry Hound, it's the son of the Huckleberry Hound in the Snagglepuss run. You know, like 10 years later, we see him as, a, as an adult trying to make it as a comedian. 
And it's very interesting, especially during that time of seeing all of the, you know, the mashups. Like, you know, you mentioned the idea of like, oh, it's going to be something that, you know, it doesn't sound good, but when it's executed, you know, there's no expectations and it becomes its own thing and, you know, exceeds those expectations beyond people's wildest dreams. Look at Tom King's Batman Elmer Fudd comic. Like, did I say more? There's, yeah, something, again, gloriously sort of liberating about not having any expectations or, or low expectations. Uh, you know, I think one of the, the historic issues that has afflicted writers is that when they become super famous really early on in their lives, they always try to then follow up on the enormous success they had at the beginning. It happened to F. Scott Fitzgerald with The Great Gatsby, you know, uh, Ernest Hemingway to a degree. But they, you know, they when you get too famous too soon or, you know, you have one work that everybody loves, uh, the pressure can be to follow that up with something just like it, and that's what sort of destroys you as an artist. And one of the, like, as a creator yourself, isn't it also in a way liberating to see, like, some of these pre-existing works go through, you know, the whole issue of copyright expiration? Like you just mentioned, The Great Gatsby. That is now in the public domain, and people can do whatever they want to do. They can do Great Gatsby 2000 if they want. And Great Gatsby in space. The greatest <laughs> Gatsby. Yeah, just all of these ideas the, and the above average Gatsby. <laughs> I <laughs> I would read that, <laughs> but just you know the whole idea of like being able to do stuff like that and for like a bit of advice for you know you know aspiring creators, I imagine taking some of those pre-existing things and molding your own ideas is like you know it can help you flourish as a creator. Am I correct? Yeah, I think so. Uh, I think it certainly helped me. Um, the, as, you know, among the first things I worked with in my writing career, uh, my publishing career, I should say, is, is the Bible and the, the Flintstones. So I, I was I started out borrowing on an enormous amount of cultural equity, and what it really does for you is allows you to like start with a certain amount, a certain baseline with your reader. You know, they know the general the gist of, of the, the Bible stories they were taught in Sunday school. They know who the Flintstones are and, you know, what bedrock is. So then it frees you up to kind of tell the stories, to, to borrow upon that cultural equity, and then in within it create your own sort of universe. But you don't have to start from scratch. It's much harder to convince somebody to read something they know nothing about, about characters they've never heard of, places they've never heard of, and, and try to get them in, involved in your emotionally in the, the world you're creating, then it is to get them involved with something they already have an emotional attachment to, like Bedrock or like the Bible. Now, speaking of the Bible, one of the books, it had a little bit of a brouhaha right before the series launched, had to go from one publisher to another, and that's Second Coming. And one of my favorite things about that series is the Amanda Connor cover of number one where... The hero is, you know, beating the crap out of a villain, looking on at Jesus as Jesus is trying to shove a loaf of bread into a criminal's mouth. And I will never not find that to be one of the funniest visuals on a comic book ever. Just a heads yeah, up. Yeah, it's such a great cover. I mean, Amanda really not always just knocks it out of the park when she does covers. Um, but the thing that's really great about it is it's sort of, you know, it's sort of a synopsis of the entire series, which is about you know, two different visions of how you deal with problems on Earth. One is like, well, every every problem can be solved with violence uh, because that's what I've got because I'm super strong. 
And the other one's like, no, no, the only, the, you know, violence only solves like a very small percentage of, of the world's problems. Everything else is sort of solved by empathy, by cooperation. And that's sort of Christ's perspective. It's what she sort of, you know, coagulates right there on the, on the cover of the first issue, which I thought was great. And in regards to that series, you know, pun mildly intended, what was the genesis of Second Coming with you and Richard Pace? Well, um, the, the genesis of the series itself was really kind of like the um, realizing that I, I had two ideas I wanted to do, which it just sort of occurred to me that these are kind of two sides of the same coin. And the two ideas were that I wanted to do like a superhero comic about a superhero becoming disillusioned with their powers as a uh, force for solving the world's problems. And I also wanted to do a comic or a story about Christ coming back to Earth and being sort of appalled by by what's happened in the last 2,000 years. And it occurred to me that, that what these both have in common is that they're both a meditation on power and its limitations. And so I wanted to, uh, so I thought it'd be good to like have both of them sort of meet in the middle, as it were, in, in the story. And they both sort of start out advocating their, their you know, vision of the world and both changing. Uh, in terms of like Richard Pace and bringing him on and uh, how the evolution of the uh, of the, the publication went, it started when I was having lunch uh, at DC with uh, Dan DiDio and Marie Javens, and I was pitching Superman comic ideas to Dan, and he was just shooting them all down left and right. He was like, mm-hmm. nope, that's been done, that's been done, that's been done. He said, look, this Superman's been around for 80 years. It's going to be almost impossible for you to find something that's not already been done. And then I said, well, in this, I had this idea sort of, you know, in the, uh, you know, the bottom of my page, just sort of reluctantly brought, well, I, I do have one more, and it's about Superman sharing a two-bedroom apartment with Jesus Christ. And he's like, well, that's never been done. <laughs> <laughs> okay. He, he said, but you know what? I, I get death threats when Superman fails to say the Pledge of Allegiance, so how about we make that a creator-owned title, and then, you, you know, you can publish it on Vertigo. And so that, that's why I changed Superman to Sunstar, which which worked out great because Superman is also like a really you know wonderful, nice guy. So changing it to Sunstar made me make I could make him a little bit more corrupt, a little angrier, a little less perfect, which works well for the dichotomy between him and Jesus. And and then um, we uh, we approached a co- uh, or I should say the editorial team approached a couple artists. Uh, who, who didn't want to have any, wouldn't, wouldn't touch this with the 10-foot pole because of the religious theme. Uh, but Richard was one of the artists on their list who was, like, drawn to it because of the religious theme or because he, he thought this, we can make this like the life of Brian or something. So he really on, he sort of, early on, he sort of, like, established himself as, like, an ideal, as somebody who was on board with the mission of the comic, which I think when you're working with an artist and you're collaborating with people is really the most important thing somebody who's going to really embrace your vision and not try to, like, mitigate you or, or fight you every step of the way. And, you know, in regards to, you know, everything that had come about in the aftermath of that as well, you know, you ended up finally doing a story over at Marvel, and it was as a part of the Marvel Snapshot series. And mm-hmm. when I was looking through the announcements, I'm seeing, you know, Evan Dorkin, Jerry Ordway, uh, Jay Edidin, and it's like a who's who of people that I've wanted to see at Marvel for a very long time. 
And then I saw yours, and I'm just like, this is a joke, right? This, He's finally doing something, and it's long over. First off, that was long overdue. So to be able to see you finally do something at Marvel as a longtime fan of your work, Yay. awesome, you know? <laughs> well, thanks. So, yeah, no, I, I, I've, I've long wanted to work at Marvel, and then, uh, but it's the kind of thing where you, you don't really pitch to them. They pitch to you. Uh, so I'm, I'm glad they, they thought of me. And specifically, uh, Kurt Busick is the one who sort of thought of me for for the Snapshot series. He um, contacted me about the, the, the Captain uh, America idea. And, I mean, when he contacts you and asks you if you want to do something, you, the, the correct answer is yes. And, you know, with that, you're working with a character such as Captain America and what was it like being able to play in the Marvel sandbox? I really liked it. And one thing I like about Marvel is that, you know, it, as they say, it's the world outside your window. So there's already this sort of postmodern pastiche of the real and the imaginary, uh, this sort of uh, heroes dealing with everyday problems or living in, you know, worlds where they, you know, they, the, there's donut shops and, uh, you know, there's there's um, potholes in the streets and stuff. So I wanted to to, to do that and, and to ter- talk about the Mad Bomb story as also being kind of about what was going on in New York in the mid-70s, specifically the, you know, burning Bronx, the white flight from the city to the suburbs, and how that was itself sort of like the Mad Bomb. That was this horribly destructive uh, thing that was visited upon people who had committed no crime but in where they were living. And just to uh, kind of refresh, at least me, you said mid-70s. That, that I guess, comes up before, because I lived in the Bronx until I was about 12 years old. We moved to New Jersey in, in 77. That was before the uh, blackout, I guess, then. Yeah, yeah. Um, the, the story itself, I think it's set in 1976. Okay. And it yeah, takes... blackout. Mm-hmm. It takes place... Although the, the blackout does... I mean, there is a blackout in the uh, in the story, but it's not obviously the famous 1977 one. And it's interesting because in regards to, you know, you're playing in the Marvel sandbox, you're also playing in the Marvel sandbox involving a very specific era, and that is the Jack Kirby run of, you know, of uh, Captain America. Just him by himself writing, drawing, editing, everything on that title— and you're playing in Jack Sandbox too. Yeah, and I think that's that's a great sandbox to play in. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of, that's one of the things we really tried to lean into in that one shot is like have as much embrace as much of the Kirby tech and sort of the Kirby universe, and also just his ethos of like what's right and wrong. Like you know, embrace that as much as possible. And myself on my end, I've been, you know, trying to collect as much of the uh, 1970s era Kirby, you know, post-DC. And there's just so much strange, bizarre, and wonderful stuff. You got the Eternals. You got Devil Dinosaur, 2001 A Space Odyssey, Machine Man, uh, Captain America, of course. And there's just something about that era. And it's wild. It's wacky. It's Kirby. And that's a perfect descriptor of it all, you know? Yeah, when I think of Kirby, I, I, I think of two things, really. The, the crazy sort of Kirby tech he comes up with, the technology uh, that he, he comes up with, and also his, the way he, he composes 
panels. And, you know, one of the, the, the things I love most about this panel is when you have, like, the reaction shot in the foreground, like somebody, like, like grimacing in pain or shrieking, like, in the foreground. To me, it looks like an Edward Munch painting or, you know, hmm. uh, like German Expressionism. And uh, I re- it has this real sort of stark urgency to it, which I love. And uh, we wanted to, to come up with a story that sort of captured that feeling. And with this, this is, again, so that was your very first time doing something with Marvel involving the King. And now you're going off doing Fantastic Four Life Story, which is going to be releasing, I believe, this spring? Yeah, the issue number one comes out in May. Not too far away. Nope. Mm-hmm. Yep. And how did that come about? Uh, Martin Brevoort uh, contacted me and asked me if I wanted to uh, write the Fantastic Four life story. It's, I don't really have a, a, a great, interesting story to go with that. It, it really is just kind of an email, but it was something where, you know, it's like I, I, was, I felt incredibly lucky to be even thought of. Uh, and, and so it's like one of those things where unless you have a really good reason to say no, you say yes. And uh, this was something, I think the thing, the reason why they thought of me was probably because it dealt with like history. And I've, I've done like a lot of comics that sort of border on historical fiction, like Snagopus, which we mentioned earlier, which is set in you know, 1950s New York. And so I thought they, they thought what they wanted was somebody who would embed the characters in the, the historic era which each issue takes place. And that's maybe why they, they thought of me. And I, and I try to do that, too, because, you know, when they were writing the Fantastic Four in the 1960s, they weren't thinking, oh, well, this is the Fantastic Four set in the 1960s. They, they, they just sort of, like, told stories that were sort of timeless that weren't were necessarily unique to that time and place in the 60s and same with the 70s and the 80s. And so what I wanted to do is go back and tell an episodic tale of them getting older and how each decade sort of affects the Fantastic Four differently. And also how, as the story of the Fantastic Four unfolds, how they affect the world and how they change history. And history is different in like the 90s, the 2000s, and the 2010s because of things that the Fantastic Four have done earlier in the, the Life Story series. So I really wanted to be about both, about how about people living in history and also history being changed by people. Now, with uh, the life story, I guess now it's going to be kind of like a brand in Marvel, you know, a type of series, because we have the Spider-Man life story by Chip Zdarsky, which, by the way, congrats to Chip for this week being a Quadarsky as he has four books come out, mm-hmm. but also just the whole overall concept of it. And without giving anything away... Does this tie in elementally with the Spider-Man life story with Reed Richards and his relationship with Spider-Man? It doesn't really. It's, it's not really based upon that. One sort of little nod to Chip's uh, Spider-Man life story, which, which I loved and really gave me a great sort of like touchstone to, to start from, was that the, the Captain America's involvement in Vietnam. Uh, so there's a, a few panels that sort of like nod like Chip's Spider-Man story. But other than that, it, it really sort of just exists as its own thing. So then other than the title, of course, being Life Story, like Spider-Man Fantastic Four, and I think you already answered this, Mark, it's going to be handled in, I don't know how many issues, but it would be over, each issue would be covering a decade. Correct, yeah. Six issues, 
covering each issue carrying a decade from the 1960s to the 2010s. Mm-hmm. And I did enjoy the Spider-Man Life Story series myself, so yeah, really looking forward to this as well. Thanks. I also want to just jump back before I completely forget how uh, with superheroes, and I think maybe with uh, when Peter mentioned Batman, um, that it uh, it occurred to me I had seen, I don't know what artist or whomever, it's on a T-shirt, it's on Facebook, but you have a picture of a bunch of superheroes, Marvel and DC, all together. Uh, apparently, they're elevated. Um, that is sitting on a iron girder of a, const- of a building that's going up, and there is unmistakably Jesus. And you have him saying, "And that's how I saved the world." And yeah, he- I have that on a T-shirt. I have yeah. no idea who drew it, but when I saw the T-shirt uh, online, like Instagram or whatever, I thought it was hilarious. So I, I bought it. Uh, I, I would. I thought it would be good for wearing when I'm doing signings for Second Coming. There you go. Yeah, and that's actually when when it was uh, you said Superman sharing the apartment with Jesus. That's where that came into mind too. So I said, this this is a thing. I mean, not the yeah. uh, ever loving blue eyed, but something where don't steal it's my jokes. Common. I just borrowed. I mean, jeez, Peter, I'd pay you interest on that. Here's a here's a dollar. Jeez. So yeah, so I guess it's 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 kind of a common thing with characters that are cartoon, comic, or otherwise, and a religious reference influence maybe you know going again back to peanuts i really never looked at it that way but i guess yeah you could interpret it as such and such and and it just goes goes on that way the other thing (laughs) to go on another uh, offshoot is when the other characters like peter said augie doggy and i said well how long is it going to be well of course before we get to go to conventions and stuff and see other characters besides from the comic books from more tv shows cartoons that people will dress up as. That ought to be an un, sort of an untapped, uh, and it's really going to maybe expand from there. I don't know. I'll cosplay as Werner Herzog. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, Werner Herzog gets like a cameo in the Flintstones. Mm-hmm. That's that's one of the the things that like I liked about the original Flintstones. Like they had like cameos by like Tony Curtis, you know, being Stony Curtis and whatnot. So I thought I would do like cameos by people that you would never expect to see in like a Flintstones. What what was Herzog's uh, stone pun name? Uh, gosh, what was it? Um, I think it was Warthog. Um, <laughs> sure, no, no, it was it was it was uh, Hertzrock. Yes. Okay, there you go. That is fantastic. <laughs> and going back over to with your work over with Marvel with the upcoming Fantastic Four life story. With that, you know, how much inspiration did you draw? Obviously, you know. Probably a lot, but what inspiration did you draw from the original Stan and Jack run? Well, a lot. I, and, I, and I think the first issue, because, you know, each each one takes place in a different decade, the first one in the 60s is actually sort of, uh, it's uh, extrapolated from like a single issue of like the uh, Stanley Jack Kirby one. Uh, I forget the number of the issue, but it's the one where um, this scientist gives uh, ben a chance to uh, become Ben Grimm again and to stop being the thing, and the scientist will take over the thing's powers, and he and he, and he becomes like the thing in order to get revenge on Reed Richards. And so I kind of built the the '60s issue around this single issue. Uh, so the look and the feel in in, in the, the, the uh, case of the first issue, the whole story really is sort of built around. The, the Lee Kirby aesthetic. 
I think what that means is that not only did Victor Von Doom have a thing for for Reed in a in a bad way, he maybe he pissed some people off. Yeah, Reed is, uh, pisses people off very easily, even though he's not trying to. I think it's just because he deals, you know, with like godlike science that um, that has ripple effects that are creating enemies left and right that he's not even aware of. Well, I was going to ask if you have Reed continue his long-lasting tradition of not being able to read a room, because I love that about him. Yeah, no, that's, that's one of the, the biggest sort of um, sources of conflict in Reed's story is the lack of emotional intelligence. Uh, it's the, the thing that sort of trips him up most in, in the story. I think that's going to wrap this episode up. But before we go, Mark, first off, you have an open invite. Anytime you want to come on, talk comics, what have you. But you also have an invite to maybe in the next few months uh, come back on and talk Fantastic Four with us on our series, Fantastic Four. So all you have to do is read a funny book and give your thoughts. I would love that. Yeah, let me know. I'll be there. Very cool. And before we go, thank you so much for your time. Oh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. How can people get a hold of you on social media? Uh, the best place is Twitter. I also have an Instagram account, but it's mostly just pictures of my cat. So better I'm to follow gonna, me on Twitter. And I'm going to follow you that one. <laughs> Let's have a little info. What's the cat? Uh, what's it? Yeah. It's like a tuxedo cat, and uh, she's not terribly interesting. What's her name? Willow. Willow. My okay. cat's name was Willow. I had an all-black cat. His name was Willow, named after the uh, really? George Lucas film. Wow. Yeah. She gets stuck up on the roof a lot. Like She's smart enough to get up on the roof, but she's not smart enough to find her way down again. So sometimes I actually have to get up there with a ladder and get her down. Or call the fire department. Yeah, no, I, they, they, they would, I would get blacklisted really quickly. <laughs> Repeat offender Willow again. For the Marvelists, I'm Peter Melnick. I'm Mark Russell. And I'm Eddie Wilson. Excelsior. Obsessed with Marvel, the Mark Russell edition. Thanks for sticking around, Mark. Here we go. Question number 2375. Whose parents were Fred and Nora? Choices are Bucky, Toro, the Human Top, or Nick Fury. Again, whose parents were Fred and Nora? Bucky, Toro, Human Top, or Nick Fury? Uh, I'm going to say Bucky. Okay. I like the way Snurub thinks. So we're going to go with that one. Yeah, I really don't know. So let's go with letter A, Bucky. And no, the answer is B, Toro. Okay, Toro, Fred, Nora. We got the relation there, I hope, if it ever comes but up. And Toro it might... would have, like his parents would have like bull themed names. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's, that's how typically we start off. So no. Unusuality there. 837. And the question reads, Who led the Masters of Evil in taking over Avengers Mansion in the Avengers 273 to 277, which was out in the mid-80s? Who led the Masters of Evil taking over Avengers Mansion? Baron Helmut Zemo, the Crimson Cowl, Ultron, or Baron Heinrich Zemo? Here we go again. Who led the Masters of Evil taking over Avengers Mansion, Avengers 273 to 277? Barrett Helmut Zemo, the Crimson Cowl, Ultron, or Baron Heinrich Zemo? 
I'm going to say the first Baron's email. First Baron. I, I was Same. thinking. I was thinking a Baron myself. Let's try letter A like before. And that is correct. Okay. We like it when it makes a bell type sound. I'm going to pretend like I actually knew that one. Yeah, well, I'm so proud well, of you, Mark. You you did it very well. Okay, and let's move up the line here to four. Two four zero eight. Come on down. It's a long one. Two four zero eight. The question says, "In which nation did Hydra originate?" Choices are Germany, Greece, China, or Japan. Germany. Hydra. Hydra. Yeah, it's gonna be Germany. Yeah, you know what? That just makes sense. I, I think again, letter A. Here we go. No, <laughs> it says Japan. What? Yeah, exactly. We're not sure about that. <laughs> Hold on. Let me give Tom Brevoort a call. <laughs> and he would know right off the bat. All right. Well, we if I have to, I'm going to have to put a flag on that one. And uh, let's just do one more for better or worse. 2119, which says, How are Rebecca and Jason Adamson related to Abraham Adamson? In the Gollum. They are his children. They are his grandchildren. They are his niece and nephew. They are his parents. How are Rebecca and Jason Adamson related to Abraham Adamson in the Gollum? His I would children. say, given the, the, the biblical sort of analogy, mm -hmm. uh, I'm going to say um, children. Children. That's another letter A. All right, and it looks like we're going to go with A one more time. No. <laughs> it's letter C, niece and nephew. Uh, let's let's do one final question to do it. No, not out of the book, Eddie. I'm going to do it right now. Mark, <laughs> what country does Captain America represent? Let's go with the <laughs> options. Choice A, America. Choice B, why are you still reading this? Choice three, C, Peter can improv and choice D Japan. Yeah, well, given the Red Skull uh, hybrid <laughs> thing, I'm going to say Japan. <laughs> That's uh, that. We have bad news. <laughs> oh. A consolation prize, if you please. Hit the branch every way down. Mark, an absolute pleasure. Yeah, I'm happy to come on anytime.